This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and indeed the world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. And just to give you a little bit of background on how we were recording these Business Impact podcasts, we are engaging in a bit of improvisation. No, I'm not in anyone's shed or a closet or anything like that. I am in an upstairs room using Zoom and most of our guests are likewise either in their kitchen or in one of their rooms. So we are looking to adapt, but just to make you aware of that's how we are adapting here at the UCD Business School in putting these podcasts together. Today's guest on Business Impact here at UCD Business School is Tara McCarthy. Tara has been the Chief Executive of Board BIA since 2017 and things were going very well for, for that organisation and the Irish food and drink industry up until very recently. We had 13 billion euros of exports, a new record set in 2019. But since COVID-19 struck earlier this year, everything is all a change. And Tara has been dealing with a number of fires, trying to put them out across a number of sectors, both domestically and in our overseas markets. And I'm very glad to have her on the podcast to talk about some of those issues this, day and this morning. Thank you, Tara, for coming on. Delighted to be here, Emmett. Tara, we talk a little bit about shock, a supply shock. I suppose there's a demand shock in there as well. Can you just give, idea, or give an idea to our listeners how the shock has played out for the the Irish food and drink industry. It's been incredibly dramatic, but can you put a bit of flesh on that for us? Absolutely. And the, this is a, a multifaceted hit that the industry is taking in that it's affecting every sector, it's affecting every company size, it's affecting every route, it's affecting every market. So from that perspective, um, there's literally been no stone unturned in, in that area. I guess it's hard straight away to put facts and figures on it. We're hoping uh, in the next couple of weeks when we get more detailed CSO data to be able to see exactly the, the full impact of figures for the first quarter. But I guess I can give you some anecdotal insights by sector on what's going on. We've heard quite a lot in the media about our meat sector, particularly our beef sector. And I guess if I give some context to that, this is a sector that exports 90% of its product. Uh, our industry in general, if I go broader than just meat, when I look at the top 15 markets that we export to, and I look at the top 15 markets that COVID has hit hardest on, there's a scary correlation. 75% of our exports in total go to the top 15 hardest hit markets as well. So you can see the story that we're building up to here. And going back to that beef story, you're seeing that food service as, as a market has effectively closed down. So any sector that is touching that industry is obviously going to be dramatically impacted by it. You're going to have our a, sec, a separate story as well when you look at the value of food service. And what I mean by that is when you go to a restaurant, you'll normally order the steak and maybe less often order the bolognese version of that. And that means that the cuts, the, the high value cuts are normally in that food service market, those high-end restaurants, more so than they will be sold in the supermarkets. So not only has the volume opportunity been hit, but the value opportunity has been hit specifically for meat and within that beef. If I go on to our dairy exports, well, then that industry is obviously very exposed to the food service area as well. Think of all of the cheese on any of those burgers uh, that you might be eating. Then again, that's a route to market that's, that's hit and it's added volatility. And if you look at the context of our dairy exports, we're in full expansion. 
in that this is the the height of our season for for producing milk and our forecasts would be that our production of milk this year would be going up by five percent so we have for the first time in our history we're going to be producing more than eight billion liters of milk yet the market for that has never been more volatile when you think of our alcohol sector, I know there's been a lot of anecdotal uh, evidence that will tell us that the supermarkets are flying and that we're all drinking a little bit more at home. But again, that hasn't been able to replace the sales that are happening in pubs, in restaurants, and most particularly for, for the smaller businesses, those craft brewers, they've been particularly hit because the visitor centers, the tap rooms, all of those are closed for them as well. So it's, it's multifaceted, but all I can tell you is it's hitting every sector and it's normally the result is hitting them in a damaging way. Okay, well, when we talk about markets being shut down, I suppose they're, they're shut down in a number of different ways. And, and Tara's talking today uh, via Zoom with us. So thanks very much for adapting from that point of view yourself. It's, it's great to be able to do these things. But let's get back to the markets. When you say they're shut down, obviously the markets themselves are shut down. But what about the transport and logistics? You know, even if the consumer at the other end wants to buy Irish food and drink, can we get them to them down the line as well? Is that not an added problem we're going to have to crack? Yes and no, in that in all fairness to everybody, food has been has been viewed as one of the most important industries within that. So everything from governments, um, all governments globally have been ensuring that the supply chain is, is working as well as possible. At the very beginning, there were some delays on certain borders as new restrictions are being put into play. But genuinely, that was never really the big issue. What we are seeing, however, is more on the logistics from containers and reefers and the cost of getting things done. So if you look at when, when this first kicked in, it was back in January, February, and it hit China first. And if you look at the logistics, lots of containers got blocked in China at that stage. Since then, the demand dynamic has evolved because those containers got blocked. Normally, they would have moved back because of demand coming from Europe. But then when the virus hit Europe, demand decreased from Europe for that product as well. So you've had, I guess, containers now that are in China. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time, which means that it's more expensive to bring them back. And, I, and obviously, if you bring them back empty, it's even more expensive again. You're also then looking at another dynamic, which is very limited amounts of our product will go through air freight. Um, they're normally just short shelf life, high value products, shellfish, oysters, that type of product would come to mind. But again, air freight would normally be in some way subsidized by people traffic. That people traffic has, has decreased significantly. So the cost of air freight has increased as well in that period. And I know people will say, but the cost of oil has gone down, but one isn't compensating for the other at the moment. Yeah, because I noticed in New Zealand, they've had that model of people go one way and, and food goes in the other direction. And they've gone and put on extra flights to get back into or at least try to get back into China. Is our model slightly different from that? It doesn't work quite like that? Absolutely, because there's a very strong tourism uh, traffic between China and New Zealand that we haven't yet developed here between Ireland and China, although I know that it is growing. But So our freight would obviously be a different model in. And most of when we're looking at our food product, it is much more orientated towards shipping because it's frozen product that we would be sending to that section of the world. And those are dependent on reefers, containers, refrigerated containers. So that's where an infrastructural block has happened. But if I look at our products closer to home, because obviously from our food industry, a lot of our product is going to the UK. A lot of our product is going to Europe. From that perspective, logistics has been less of an issue, although continuously moving those containers around the world has provided some challenges to companies. 
And the, the other issue, I suppose, Tara, is you're talking about the kind of global figures here. Behind all these figures are producers on the ground at the farm gate. Um, can you give me any sense of what it's like at the producer level with all this stock backed up, all this capacity backed up? What's happening at that, that point? Yeah, I can I can do right the way through the supply chain here. Farmers have been in the economically hit very hard by this. Uh, the price of milk has gone down that they receive from their co-ops. The price of beef has gone down that they will receive from their processors. So there's been a significant financial and economic hit. I know UCD has come out very recently with publications on the type and scale of economic impact that this has had as well for farmers. And, and that's a huge challenge for them. When you look at the COVID hit to farmers, it has been probably less from a physical perspective in that self-isolation and the way Irish farming works is probably close bedfellows at the best of times. So from that particular area, a lot of work was put into the supply chain from both co-ops and processors to ensure that no farmers were put at risk. Board BIA ourselves, we suspended our inspections of farms to make sure again that no auditor or none of our interactions would in any way put our production at risk or put our farming families at risk. Very similarly at processing level, you've seen huge work being put in at all times. And again, go back to that point I made about the fact that we're at peak milk production. So every single centimetre of a factory is needed to be at full production here. And there was a very, very big concern among our processors that they could get hit among their staff. So they have in some ways been fortuitous and in other ways been very well planned in this area to ensure that optimal production is is being maintained. We have had some different factories have been hit and there has been some media correspondence about uh, some outbreaks in our meat factories. And again, they've been managing that from the the perspective that demand has decreased. So they have obviously put in bigger and more more relevant social isolation, distancing, etc. responses into the factories. So from that perspective, supplies chains have been opened. Our Department of Agriculture has maintained veterinary inspections throughout this as well. So every effort has been put in on on an Ireland Inc. basis to ensure that that supply chain is operating well and and working and I guess ensuring that we're meeting the demands of our uh, supermarkets and our customers throughout the world. Aaron, are you confident from your vantage point that the, the meat trade in particular can, can stay um, durable during this period? I, I guess my, my, my crystal ball is only as good as anybody else's <laughs> on this one. Uh, we've engaged a lot with the industry. They are cautiously confident, I guess, and that's as best as we can be in that we're from a medical profession and, and we are not medics, but we're getting advice from the HSE. We're getting advice from those experts. Uh, every contingency that can be thought of is being put in place. The importance of staff and their safety is the number one priority in every line of our business. And obviously that that comes then in second place, this in second place comes delivering to our industry or delivering to, to the product to our customers. But what we are really seeing is there's a huge resilience in this industry. There's a very committed workforce to this industry. There's a confidence in the system as well that's being put there. Obviously, testing is key in this. And there's obvious conversations continually going on to ensure that the testing criteria matches the needs. And I'm hearing from what you're saying, you know, kind of uh, in my own mind, I'm thinking of lakes of excess milk and, and meat product and so on. How how concerned would you be about the glut of supply, the overcapacity? And is it a question of some of it will just have to be destroyed or disposed of? Or is it just prices will go down? Or how, how do you see it playing out? 
So at present, uh, no product is being destroyed. At present, everything is being collected. It has been the case in other jurisdictions, both in the UK and in the US. There's been very high level media examples of uh, farmers being forced to throw milk away because there haven't been a position to have it collected. All of those risk conversations were had in Ireland and, and we were at high risk from the perspective of being in peak milk. So if that lorry driver got hit, if that factory couldn't process what would happen. But significant scenarios were developed and, and thankfully we weren't hit in that way. Uh, so there has been no product destroyed that we're aware of. However, where the hits have happened, as I was talking earlier, is they, the prices that farmers, that processors, that the market is giving for the, the, the product. Now, the European Commission has come out with limited levels of support. They're talking about uh, storage aid. They're talking about being able to purchase product off the market because, again, this is a global supply issue, more so than an Irish supply issue. So there are some mechanisms being explored to that end. But clearly the prices that the market is recovering and most importantly for those products I mentioned earlier, those steak cuts, those fillets, etc., they're being hit from their normal price level down to almost a, a sale price level to promote consumption of those products. How confident are you that we can get into a lot of these markets we were very strongly represented, represented in before? I know, Board B, I've been reading some of the literature you're talking about, recover and reset, uh, recovering, resetting those markets. Um, how far ahead do you work uh, looking ahead at some of the, the restrictions that have been loosened up in China and other markets? Like, How far ahead of that can you get just as an organisation? Um, this is a very different crisis from anything that we've ever seen before from the perspective of this isn't a food crisis. This is a global economic pandemic. So no, the likes of this haven't been seen for a hundred years. So what we're looking to do is ensure that we are engaging with our customers, that there is nobody not being contacted by Ireland and that they know that Ireland remains open for business and that Ireland is there for them. And I think that resilience of our industry, the resilience of the supply chain has been to our credit and is being hugely appreciated by our customers as well. And no orders are not being met by Ireland Inc. from that perspective. But notwithstanding that, their demand has decreased and, and their business has faced a shock that they've never seen the likes of as well. So our industry is engaging. We as Bia are engaging, but our industry is also engaging, ensuring that we are there for them and that when they're opening, we have already done a lot of the thinking for them on what their, what their consumers are going to be looking for. And do you think the, the relationships that were there before the, the pandemic will kind of broadly be the same? Or do you think everything starts from a kind of a fresh slate in terms of sort of Asian markets in particular? No, I, I would say that this is a build. This isn't um, a stop and start. And, and why I mean by that is the reason that business would have slowed down was in no way related to their, their um, faith in their supply chain. The reason why business would have slowed down is that that customer had to close. So they're now opening and they're looking for opportunities to serve their consumers and in so many ways to reset themselves. So that's why what we're looking to do is work in partnership with those customers and give them new solutions bring innovative understanding to them. And we've done a lot of work in our, with our thinking house and our, our insight center to already be ahead of where their consumers may be to ensure that 
or thinking the way they need to think. What I mean by that is when I'm opening a new food, my, my food service uh, operation, I've been closed for six weeks. I've uh, trying to now reach out to, to those consumers. What are the messages and the signals I need to give to that consumer so that they have faith and trust in coming back to me? How can I build their confidence? And what the Irish supply chain is looking to do is to support that customer tell that story. So it's very much a partnership piece rather than starting from scratch again. And, and what can, it's very hard to condense this down to be fair, Tara, but what kind of taste changes or customer or consumer changes are you looking at, uh, not just um, over in Asia, but in other parts of the world as well? Yeah, so we're checking this as a, at a global level. We've led with the home market um, because I guess that's where we're most familiar. And then we're testing those ideas in the UK, Germany, the US, Spain, Italy, and broadening it out then to where the, the, the markets are starting to, to reopen and where our footprint is strongest as well. What we're feel, hearing uh, back from uh, the watch that we're doing of, of consumer behaviour are multitude and we have 14 different indicators that we're tracking and all of this information is available on the the covid hub within the Borbia website so all of the information continuously is being updated because one of the challenges we find Emmett is as soon as you say something it's almost out of date at this stage so if any of your listeners are looking for up-to-date information I would direct them to that but just to give you some examples of how we're how we're seeing would be in the whole idea of shielding and what we mean by that is you know that your social distancing people belong to you maybe cocooning that the idea of physical safety and protecting yourself and your family have been up as a priority as never before and what we're now seeing is that consumers are looking to their food as a way to shield themselves and they're looking at the functionality of that behaviors that would drive you to to, to this conclusion would be at the beginning orange juice sales were boosted up as people try to look at immunity boosting foods. You then see that vitamin D is in some way being connected to immunity from the virus. And again, vitamin D uh, enhanced products are again boosting. So what we're looking is at the functionality of foods and for our industry to call out where it has relevant functionality to help consumers as they look to the natural supports that they may have. Other areas is the role of tech. How do you engage with tech as consumers are perhaps becoming more au fait with online everything as we ourselves are today? Well, how can you then tell your story in that environment? So it's all of these different messages and signals that we are getting from the market. How can you interpret that and how can you then look at the validators and we're providing many of those validators to industry and then how can you then create a toolkit that will help you to reset so what Borbia is doing is number one identifying these indicators for you walking you through those indicators validating those indicators in the relevant markets and then translating all of that through one-to-one work with individual companies and with customers in a toolkit format to help you reset in this new agenda Tara there's a a pretty vigorous debate going on about whether restaurants and a leave bars out of this for the moment but you may be able to comment on that but in terms of whether restaurants can return to um, some kind of commercial level or commercially viable level of operation later this year maybe even into next year who knows I certainly don't know but what do you think the viability of the kind of restaurant trade is going to be I mean, are you are you 
optimistic about that? Or are you actually saying, look, this, a lot of this still has to be kind of chewed over and, and we'll see whether it's possible for certain establishments to do it, others not? What's your kind of gut instinct on that? It, it is a challenging space and, and we're watching the rest of Europe from, from this as well because clearly it's, it's a huge market for Ireland. And when we look at what's happening in Spain, there, as of the 11th of May, they're going to allow their cafes, restaurants, hotels and, and terraces open, uh, but they're only going to allow them open at 30% capacity. Now, that's a huge restriction to put on a business for its very, very viability. Can it be viable at 30%? And you've got two dynamics. And how do you fix that? Well, obviously, if you're letting fewer consumers into your market, then your either your costs or your the value that you get in, one of those has to decrease and one of those has to increase. Would that imply that people would look for increased prices in restaurants in order to, to go there? What will that do then to a consumer who may very well be searching for value? in a new economic environment as well. Then you're seeing things like in Belgium, where they're talking in June, that they're going to reopen their restaurants gradually. France is as well looking at different models. Like You don't want to end up where the likes of Japan opened and then closed and then extended their state of emergency even further. So there's so many different dynamics, Emmett, that are going on here. I can understand hugely the challenge that any restaurateur is um, is facing into when you put a cap on the number of people that are left into their business and at the same time increase the costs for them to do that business. So that economic viability is definitely a question that has to be asked. But what we are seeing is that many of those uh, operators are pivoting into building up their takeaway, building up their online availability as well, and reinventing themselves in new spaces. We're seeing examples in Italy, one of the Michelin star chefs, who again, his restaurant has been closed, doing a home delivery product at the weekends to high value consumers. So there's different models, there's going to be innovation driving through this, but I would suggest that a business as usual um, concept would be very, very challenging if people are linked, limited in the capacity that they can hold in a restaurant. Yeah, and that 30% figure you mentioned is, is pretty alarming, all right. Uh, I think um, they, they'd have to build up the takeaway piece a lot to compensate, but we'll see how it settles down. I suppose there will be leaders who will show the way, who will go out ahead of the, the rest of the industry and show. The other way, the other way then, Bordbia has had a tremendous success in recent years was the Bloom Festival. You attracted 120,000 people to the Felix Park, I, I believe, last year. I mean, that was a shop window, the shop window of all shop windows for the smaller artisan provider. I mean, where do the companies that benefited so greatly from that where do they go now to kind of interact or have a touch point with the consumer yeah that june bank holiday weekend i have to say was one of my favorites uh, <laughs> seems a long way to, away <laughs> absolutely um, and it was with huge regret that we had to had to cancel that event but obviously when you have 120,000 people even though it was in an outdoor environment for the most part you couldn't take the risk for for it and obviously government restrictions had come to 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 play after that where you wouldn't have got a license anyway but i guess what we're now looking to do is create a, a new event because we don't want to miss that opportunity to celebrate the garden I think that uh, we haven't had an April like this um, probably for many, many years. So what we're looking to do is to make sure that we continue to celebrate outdoors. So we've got two initiatives there. We've got for the June Bank Holiday Weekend, we will have a Bloom at Home event and we're creating a digital backdrop to that. Um, and we'll be partnering with RTE and we'll be partnering with many of our normal stakeholders in that environment to make sure that the whole celebration and 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 I guess the almost the mental 
health well-being element of this that happens out in gardens in this period is is being captured very similarly we'll be looking for online supports as well for the smaller businesses that would have benefited to ensure that they link in to the to the halo effect of that bloom at home event as well so borbia and bloom will continue this year but in a very very different format so like every other organization we're pivoting ourselves significantly as well but focusing on those particularly those small businesses they've been very much at the heart of an awful lot of our thinking Emmett right from the beginning so we kicked off a whole grants program for those businesses very early on we would normally run our grants once a year and we had that already done in March of this year where 1 million euro was distributed to 115 different companies but what we did then was we boosted that grants program uh, very early on again and, and in April we opened it up and what we wanted to do was ensure that we got a, a short, sharp intervention into companies. So in literally, we opened it up for just one month and in that period, 248 companies came into us. Another 2 million euro was put through in the grants program. So for the first time ever in Board B's history, over 3 million euro will be paid out um, in grants to over 360 small businesses to ensure that they're able to market their way out of this as well. And the kind of marketing they're looking at is um, advice for moving online, pivoting their packaging to online, looking at marketing consultancy advice, looking at diversification advice, helping those who are very exposed to food service look to retail operations as well. We've also engaged significantly with the Irish market and with the Irish retailers who I have to say have performed fantastically in supporting the local supply base as well and ensuring that they provided where relevant a route to market uh, for so many of those companies and, and a key example of that would be our horticulture industry where garden centres are closed and will remain closed until the 18th of May. So the retailers have been selling more plants as we helped our nurseries to get a route for products which have, with a very, very short shelf life. So there's a lot of work to uh, help those smaller businesses going on both financially and obviously a whole of government approach can be seen in that, whether it's through Enterprise Ireland or the local enterprise offices, supporting through grants and working capital, etc. But from a Borbier perspective, our focus has been on their marketing and in their business generation opportunities as well. And what's the, that's, they're great initiatives because the smaller artisan producer does sometimes get, get lost on these things. And globally looking at it now, and this is why I'm a bit concerned because I tend to, to look um, wider out than just Europe even, but what, what I look at is a sea of protectionism breaking out. We know some of the political um, causes of that. Are you concerned anyway that some markets will close up and that the export of things will be constrained in some way to make sure that supply chains internally in some countries are kind of given first protection? Is, is that something as a country that's so dependent on free trade, unrestrained food um, exchange and trade, is that something you'd have a concern about? I think, Emmett, that's probably one of the biggest challenges that's facing our exporters. And we already have a number of examples of that happening. Um, and it's politics. So when you look at this, you're already seeing in almost every market, whether it was China, Italy, France, um, all coming out uh, more from politics than from consumers, might I be very, very particular um, in saying. So you'll have trade organizations, you'll have um, politicians that will uh, make announcements and say you should buy local. And, and obviously there's a logic to that. There'll be an economic drive to that. You're seeing a, a full campaign in Italy at the moment. And I won't say that my Italian is very good, but Mongia Italio is a, a new campaign that's uh, being driven there. And you can guess it, it, Italian is the, the translation of it. And you're getting that right the way through. And what we're looking to do 
is challenge the thinking of that because fundamentally this has to be consumer driven. It's the consumer will make the choices. Trade will make some, but consumer ultimately will make the choices. And what we're dialing up significantly and go back again to those indicators that we're seeing of what does a consumer look for? What is a consumer going to be demanding? And we believe a consumer is going to be demanding increasingly safe food and signals and proof of a reputation that tells them that their food is safe and that protection has been put in place. Now, very often there's a logical link emit to that and eat local because obviously you may not trust foreigners and you'll trust local, maybe some very blunt way of putting that. But what we're looking to communicate is the safety and the reputation of Irish food and use that as our key calling card, the systems that are, how, how seriously Ireland takes its food industry from on-farm through to processing, through to that supply chain, through to that product being delivered and its reputation speaking to that particular agenda. Now, it's going to make it a very, very challenging conversation, but we do believe it's a very, very important one that we have. And our reputation does stand to us. We, we do a lot of uh, surveys in particularly the UK which is our number one market. And when we look at uh, our positioning in the UK, the British consumer actually views Irish food as local food. Uh, they view it as food from the British Isles. We look at for specifically when we look at the beef category, many of the consumers, the majority of consumers will actually view Irish beef as more local than Welsh beef. And that's because it's, it's marketed in that market as British and Irish all of the time. So it's not take Irish, it's different, it's better. It's British and Irish as a solution to those consumers. So what we're looking continuously is to give that consumer the proof point that they're chasing down to ensure that they have the security and the confidence to choose Irish. But I wouldn't underestimate by any means the challenges that we'll be faced on protectionism. Well, Tara, I have to congratulate you. You've gone nearly half an hour without talking about Brexit. <laughs> so, you, it was you, my you, next one. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're edging very close to bringing it up, so I'll just go for it and bring it in. I mean, this is another risk factor lying in there like a spectre behind the pandemic, maybe something that will really occupy our minds after the summer, October, November time as the talks intensify. Is that something else on your radar, the transition period coming to an end and what kind of relationship we're going to have with that big UK market that you mentioned? I guess when we were doing our plans uh, in December, many of them have uh, pivoted again in, at our most recent board meetings. But obviously Brexit and sustainability uh, would have been the two biggest challenges that we would have felt that our food industry faces and within opportunities within that as well, but they would have been the two big topics that we would have looked at. And I guess since March, there's been a fog of COVID that has been laid on every single aspect of the globe's business. And there is the risk that those other two big, big issues aren't being given enough attention in general. We've done risk registers with our industry and traditionally that risk register for the last four years have been, has been a Brexit register. But to say your, your, your risk register must be 20, 30 pages long after this year. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's getting new, new dynamics and new matrix built into it all of the time. But when we looked at it now, what we're looking at is how serious is, is Brexit? And it is a huge challenge facing our industry, Emmett. And what we're looking to ensure is that the, the industry doesn't lose focus on that. Now, notwithstanding that, and, and we, we would constantly look to silver linings versus dark clouds, and all of the preparation our industry has done over the last four years stood to us in COVID 
because our understanding of our supply chain and, and there were significant disruptions at risk within the supply chain during COVID, all of the thinking, all of the scenario building, all of the plan Bs had already been put in place because of Brexit so that the industry was able to respond in a stunningly quick way to COVID. So that's stood to us. Similarly, if you look at, for many businesses, the fact that the UK closed down effectively for many of them, Brexit came already on, on the risks that they were facing on losing customers, how you manage customer engagement, et cetera. So that sharp shock has happened to many businesses. But at the same time, all of the training on customs, all of the training on supply chain, et cetera, continues and remains. But we would be watching and we would be engaging hugely with our customer bases. Our market diversification agenda remains on high alert and remains very, very active as we look to mitigate against all of the significant risks that we face. Yeah, I feel sorry for producers. I have nothing but sympathy for them because they were told last year, you must diversify, you must be less dependent on the UK market. And some of them were in the process of doing that, setting up new relationships, signing new contracts elsewhere. And then suddenly the pandemic comes along and we're back to square one for some of those so it has been very hard for certain companies to balance out where they they kind of put their efforts I suppose diversification, though, even though this has been a challenging year, diversification is never the wrong thing to do. And it's those companies that have probably a, de a huge dependency on one market or a one customer or one route to market have been hit the hardest by this. So I think the diversification agenda has really probably been validated again in this crisis. So it's a case now of helping companies navigate the fog of COVID, but keeping now that that fog is starting to, to lift, keeping a focus on the new challenges and as importantly or even more importantly on where the opportunities might lie ahead and in terms of what the final um, looking at the year 13 billion as I said an incredible high point nobody expects to be anywhere close to that this year it's going to be a massive dramatic slump when the figures do eventually emerge what's your own instinct about how later on this year and I know I'm asking you you don't have a crystal ball you're not a healthcare professional I totally accept that but in terms of the food industry do you see some kind of at least tepid recovery later this year for some of parts of the sector? So Emmett, what we're looking at is the, the challenge of when markets will open and how different markets will respond and how will they stay open. So what we're looking at is clearly retail is here to stay. Retail it has been boosted and we would expect that boost to remain right the way through to the third quarter, anything of up to 8 to 10%. The challenge is where does food service go? And uh, we're seeing from JIRA forecasts that even right the way through to 2021, that food service will be down. They expect it to be down for Europe anyway, around 40% to year end, and then possibly even a further 15% down in 2021, as in back to, I'm comparing to 2019 levels. So what we're looking at here is a constant challenge that is going to be medical driven, policy driven. And what we're looking to do is where the opportunity, to, to find the opportunities because retail presents opportunities online presents opportunities and the final element and where the great unknown is is how do you navigate food service um i think we've covered a great amount of ground it's very interesting it's incredibly dynamic i, I think you have a tough job there I, I suppose compared to your last job with bim this is on another level completely but you know it's an interesting time at the same time you'll probably look back in a few years and, and say god we learned a heck of a lot from this period 
I, I suppose I mean, the key piece for us is not to waste the crisis. And yeah. so there, there's a lot of, you know, new analysis being done. There's a lot of investigation being done as to where, where is the opportunity here. And there is, I think, a huge reputational opportunity for Ireland Inc. with regard to the resilience that it's shown. You know, that idea that Ireland isn't spilling milk down a drain. Ireland is actually collecting every drop of milk. Ireland is serving every single customer globally. Um, and addressing the challenge. And I think when you look at where the food industry is positioned in Ireland as viewed as a priority industry, that's being seen globally as a huge asset. Great. Well, that, that's where we'll trade on from now on. I think it's, it's the way to go, you know. Fantastic. Emma, it is an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, really enjoyed with the you. conversation. Thanks very much. I know it's, you're extremely busy, so really do appreciate you taking out the half hour for us. Absolutely delighted to. 